Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Up next on Inside the SCCA, a Legends Edition with Dorsey Schrader. Our guest today is an SCCA Hall of Famer for good reason. Nine runoffs appearances, a second place in Sports Renault. Back when that was a thing, some folks probably don't even remember what, that it was at one time called Sports Renault. He was the Spec Racer Pro Series champion in 1985, IMSA GTO champion in 1990, Trans Am champion as a rookie in 89, two-time appearances in the IROC. That's the International Race of Champions, again, for the youngsters. Probably don't even know what that is. <laughs> he was in the Rolex 24 several times, the Daytona 500, a NASCAR road course ringer in the Cup Series a couple of times. Did you do Sebring, Dorsey? I'm sure you did, right? Yeah, I won Sebring back in 88 with uh, Wally Gallenbach for there Jack Roush and that old uh, Stroh's light uh, Cougar. So, as you may have guessed, joining me this morning, Dorsey Schrader, Inside the SCCA, good to have you here, sir. Thanks to be here, too. Thank you. You know, it's funny. When I looked on your, your doing all of my research, because I actually do a little bit of research for these podcasts. Some people might, might not think so. I looked on the uh, SCCA Hall of Fame page, and, and the first sentence on your bio says, anyone who has ever met Dorsey Schrader has a story they can tell about Dorsey Schrader. So, and, and I am in that category. I actually have two stories I can tell, and we're going to get to that as we go. Uh, so I, it's just, it's such a, such a, a great opportunity to have you here. You've done so much. You've been, oh, and I forgot, I didn't even talk about all the broadcasting you've done. I think you've been on every network that's, that's done uh, <laughs> broadcasting of, of motorsports here in North America. You, you were all the way back in the Speed Vision days. You were uh, on Speed. You've done uh, FS1. I think I've seen you on CBS at one point in time. It's, you, you're everywhere, and, and you're not slowing down. I, I also understand You've got the, sh t t first of all, I, I, I am enchanted with the short bus. <laughs> and the short bus, I have to say, is doing pretty good. I've got this one little electrical glitch, <laughs> which is driving me kind of crazy. But uh, other than that, it, uh, it just, it, it has, uh, it, it's seen a lot of racetracks and a lot of miles on the highway. And it's, uh, it's something I really enjoy. Uh, I might have to upgrade shortly to a uh, a larger one right. um my wife and my dog decided they like go traveling too Good. so uh, <laughs> so it it might need to it might need to get on steroids a little bit there you go so for those who don't know uh the short bus is a a major mini motorhome 
And and if you were to and, and when you said you had electrical problems, anybody who's ever had a motorhome or a travel trailer knows exactly what you're talking about. I've never been in a motorhome that didn't have some sort of an electrical problem in it. Um, but uh, it's it's one of those like top kick chassis, right, with a motorhome. They, on it. They, they call these things a Super C now. OK. And a Super C is the old style motorhome. We're in um, the engines in the front. Right. And you've, you've got a, a, a walk through from the from the front part all the way through to the rear part. And um, but it's on a it's on a Freightliner big chassis. Right. So it's a it's a very capable unit. Uh, Mercedes 7.2 liter uh, turbo diesel. You know, it, it's uh, it's just the opposite. One of the things that this is my 11th one, by the way. Wow. 11th motorhome. And, and I've had the big uh, diesel pushers. And, and, and the problem with those is, quite honestly, that nobody wants to work on them. They're really sure. difficult. And you can't get parts for them as easily as a front engine ones, just like an over-the-road truck. Right, and right. those guys will tell what in. And that's why I changed over. But I went, and it's a cool little unit. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. neat. It's pretty neat. And uh, everybody loves it. I should have a web page for it. Actually. Exactly. Exactly. I, I always l- l- want to see where, the, where the short bus is going this weekend. So, uh, and, and are you still doing Trans Am race directing? No, I haven't. Uh, I, I'm still with HSR as competition. Okay. Director there. And uh, I love those guys and, and they do, you know, a scheduled eight, nine, 10 races a year. And, and it's, you know, being kind of semi-retired, I guess you'd call it. Um, you know, I took on a lot. I did first uh, SRO, and I enjoyed those guys. I spent three years there and right. then went over to Trans Am. Um, that was a, a more hostile environment. <laughs> and, and I'm too old for all that stress. So HSR is a good blend of uh, what I came from, basically, which was uh, SECA background. Right. Uh, I grew up running the runoffs, like you said, did like eight, nine appearances there in various classes. Uh, totally enjoyed every one of those experiences. And uh, and I raced with some of the toughest, meanest, hardest driving competitors that, that there were ever, you know, well, and, and it was good. It, you started in Formula B back when that was like the class. You know, Actually, before that, I was in H, H production for a couple of years before okay. Formula B. But you're absolutely correct that Formula B in my era was the toughest of the toughest. I ironically went to driving school with Bobby Rahal on yeah. our first uh, driving schools. And we went to um, a bunch of races in the Midwest that year and competed against each other. And, and then, you know, along down the way, just got to go through the plethora of all of the top name guys. Right. I mean, I ran with everybody. So it was really cool. <laughs> and, and from there, B sedan GT2 formula Atlantic. And then here's where our lives first crossed. And you, and I I've told you this story before at the racetrack it's in, in spec racer Renault at the time, they just called it sports Renault. Uh, you had a school in yeah. St. Louis at gateway with the sports Renaults, right? Yeah, well, we did. Me and Simon Kirkby 
had uh, six sports Renaults and, and a couple of uh, Volkswagen sponsors too. So we had GTIs and we ran a school, just the two of us uh, in, in, at the, at Gateway. And, you know, that, that back in the day, then with sports Renault, Ren this, this was a weird deal for me. I, I have to kind of regress and, and, and tell you what happened there because I was running Formula B, which turned into Formula Atlantic. And right. it was probably the premier class with the premier guys. And I basically spent all those years, uh, 12 in total, um, in sports or in Formula B and Formula Atlantic and um, got hurt pretty badly in 76 and had to take some time out, you know, from that, my orthopedic surgeon said, you know, you can't do what you've been doing <laughs> because if you hurt your arm again, it's done. Right. You know, it's, it's not going to work anymore. I can't fix it. So, uh, I went to, that's how I got into B sedan, but ultimately I ended up with a B sedan in my garage, which was a Datsun 610. I had a formula Atlantic 78 March, which was now worth nothing because, you know, ground effects came in just at that time. Right. And right. So if you had a flat bottom car, you would just instantly jump. Yeah. You that's know, when the, I, the Ralts came in and the Swifts, right? Well, the Ralt came, the RT1 came first and it was a better car than the March was for sure. It was, it was a faster car. It was a more uh, friendly car. And then shortly after that, everybody started going crazy in Formula B, made it Formula Atlantic. Right. You know, we switched from the twin cam um, Lotus big valve to a Cosworth BDA. And um, it got more expensive, more expensive. And here I am sitting there. I just got married. I just had my first child, my only daughter. And I'm in my first house, second house. And so I'm loaded to my ears. I mean, right. I'm blown up. And, <laughs> and here comes Sports Renault, you know, on the premise that for $10,000, you could buy a kit car, put it together yourself, and then go out there, race. And it was, you know, it was the first real spec car class. And Renault backed it 100%. So the, the kit was 10 grand. Right. If you, then the pro race series came right behind that. And if you won a pro race, it paid 10 grand. Paid for the kit. So you, you're now you're breaking even at that point. I ended up that year winning six races, $60,000. I did ruin one car. So, so <laughs> of course. So fifth, make it 50. There you go. <laughs> so, so before we get more into that, real quick, form, back in the, the 80s, Formula, it, people may not remember this, but Formula Atlantic and Super V mm -hmm. were were the stepping stones to IndyCar. You know, Al Jr. was in Super V. Uh, Michael Andretti was in Super V. Uh, there was a bunch of folks like you who were in, in Formula Atlantic. Was your aspiration to go IndyCar racing at that point? IndyCar or Formula One. I, right. I mean, I was still really young back then. So, you know, Formula One wasn't out of the question, but it can't. You know, basically it was because Formula One was ruled by the Europeans. And and when Michael Andretti went over there and gave his attempt at Formula One, he was just completely shut down. So was everybody else, me right. included. There was no openings over there. They didn't want really want us over there at that time. Right. 
I'm not sure they do now either. Well, that's up. that's a whole nother podcast we could do on that. Right. You know? Yeah. But, sure. you know, my yeah. thought process was if someone with the name of Michael Andretti and the talent of Michael Andretti and the money of Michael Andretti couldn't mm-hmm. go and be successful in Formula One as an American, there was something going on in the, the politics and the whole, you know, I'm that's- a snooty European and we don't like American drivers thing. Because there's no reason why Michael couldn't have been a two or three or four time Formula One champion. No. Uh, and you're right on all counts there. I mean, there was, it, it, you know, and I can't just put it there either. I mean, I'll say, so Formula One had that barrier. So did NASCAR. Yep. Yeah. You know, for yeah. A, new, a, a sports, a sports guy, a sports car guy coming in wasn't really welcome. Yeah, no, I, I, you're absolutely 100% correct. So, all right, back to sports Renault. You had your school. You said you had six cars. Right. At some point, you shut down the school. Yep. And, uh, and, and my dad gave you a call and answered an ad and bought one of those six cars. Right. Okay. So he, he, Brings the car home, you know, we spit shine it and everything. Cause of course the school car looks a little rough when you get it, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they, get, they're, yeah. they get some abuse, they get some abuse. So, so we spit shine the thing, we get the car ready. We take it to, uh, we take it to, I think Blackhawk farms for our first race with it. Uh, that's uh, up in the uh, central division yep. up just outside of uh, Milwaukee, Chicago. Area. No, well, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And we go and and my dad back in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, ran H production and uh, in a Spridget. And then he did some some midget and sprint car racing against guys like uh, Rutherford and 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 Unser. You may have heard some of these names, but uh, but he got into just exactly the same story you did. Uh, he got married. I came along, money got tight, and he and he put mm-hmm. everything away for a while. Came back, he had a he had a uh, in in eighty six, I think it was. He had what they call a a cardiac episode, which was a pre heart attack essentially. And uh, the doctor, yeah, so he got healthy. Doctor said you need a hobby. So a couple of months later, he walks into the doctor with the SECA uh, medical form. <laughs> And the doc looked at him and the doc looked at him and said, I was thinking like chess or stamp (laughs) collecting, but if this will eliminate your stress, I will sign the piece of paper because you're healthy. So he buys this car from you. We go to Blackhawk Farms and he's a pretty good race car driver and he finishes DFL dead last. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And he's like, I don't know what's going on. So he, we trucked the car down to Louisville and gave it to the Harringtons. I'm sure yeah, you remember the Harringtons. Yeah. Scott and his Brad dad, Gene. Scott. Yeah. Yep. Gene and Scott. Gene and, and Gene, Scott. God, God rest his soul. Uh, you know, he's not with us anymore. A wonderful man. I I really enjoyed racing with those two guys. Yeah, we did too. And of we course, Scott too. and I both did uh, Skip Barber Racing School together. And uh, Scott was a hell of a race car driver. He's a hell yes, of a sir. race car driver. Absolutely. So, so we send it down to them. They pull the engine apart because you, you could only have the engines taken apart by the, the right. CSRs. And he calls my dad up and he goes, there were three bent rods in this motor. <laughs> it's amazing that the motor even went through a race weekend. So they, so they build the motor to up. They go over the car. 
They deliver it to us at IRP for the next race. My dad gets in the car. It is so fast that he almost wrecks it on the first lap going into turn one because he's doing 30 or 40 miles per hour faster than he was at the last race in in the top gear. And he, he almost didn't get a chance to stop for turn one. It was such a big difference. And, and turn one was really fast at IRP. It you was. Know, I, I ran there a lot. And, and, you know, that was that was a lift and go. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So from the the pro series in sports, Renault essentially got you uh, uh, an audition with Jack Roush. Didn't they run with some of the IMSA well, races? Is that how you guys met? Actually, in between there, I won that. It was funny. You brought up Scott Legacy, who beat me, and we're still good friends. He's in TA2 right now in Trans Am. Right. Uh, and his son, who looks just exactly like him, uh, is, you know, is a really good competitor over there. I mean, and anyway, we, we ran six races on the same weekend because there were so many cars. It was like 106, 110 cars. Wow. And so we, they didn't know, they didn't expect that many, but all of them showed up. And so what they did was they, it was like sprint car racing. They took the, uh, they took, the odd numbered cars right and ran a race with them the even number cars and ran a race with them if you won on the odd side the even side you were on the front row of the next race got it yep well it kept being me and david murray you know from atlanta and we right. i mean every time i'd win my race he'd win his race we do it again i'd win my race he'd win his race and they'd switch flop back and forth and got the thing all and then you know, I ended up winning the pro championship, but it was six races out of six. The seventh race was the runoffs. Right. And then I ran that and I was on the pole again. Now they changed the engine and the transmission three times. That was one of the things that Renault did. If you won a lot or if you won at all, they had the right to pull your engine. Right. And they actually had mechanics down there and they would take your engine out and they'd put your new one in or a gearbox or whatever. So they, they, they kept doing that. So they kept giving me new, fresh engines. And we would set them up. This was fun. We were down the road Atlanta. And we'd put it up on jack stands. And they'd give us a new engine. And we'd put um, just regular motor oil in it. And we'd start it up and put a fan on the radiator and run the thing for the entire next day, all night long. Wow. Never turn it off. we get it up to about as high as, our, you know, as the carburetor screw would go in, say 3,000, 4,000 RPM. And we'd run that thing till the next morning, and then we dumped the oil out of it. We'd put, uh, we had red line oil, like zero fifteen. Yep, we'd that's what everyone that, used. Yeah, we put that synthetic in there, and then we'd go out there and run again, win again. We did that six days straight, and then uh, on the seventh day was runoff. So I was on the pole, led every single lap to the last one. I came out of turn seven at Road Atlanta, which is coming on the back straightaway. And I missed the second, the third gear upshift. Oh, it didn't go in. And I went and I, and I popped it in as quick as I could. And I already knew I screwed. I looked in the rear view mirror and there's a line of a hundred cars coming. Yep. And the first one behind me is legacy. He wins the race. Crazy. And, but I, I love the guy. He, he's like a brother. I mean, I, I raced against some really good guys back then too. Yeah. Yeah. That red line oil was like gold. It was like, yeah. 10 bucks a quart and yeah, and tim may tim may uh he sponsored me on that and uh even through into trans am there was a lot of guys 
that I, I need to give credit to, you know, I should give credit to Leo, Leo Mal from uh, Goodyear, ran right. Goodyear at the time. Oh, we were all on Goodyear tires and sports for no. And I asked him, yeah, I called him up one day and I said, Hey, can you cut me some kind of deal on tires? And he goes, give me your address. He sent me a pallet of tires. <laughs> and they, the, I mean, I didn't have a garage big enough for a pallet of tires. <laughs> That's you good know? stuff. I, I'll, I'll never forget. I was my dad's uh, like 16 year old crew chief. I, I, all I knew how to do was change tires and change the oil, but that's honestly on a sports Renault. That's all you really had to do. Yeah. But, give it a little wax. But I'll, rem- I, I, I'll never forget the time I, I was changing the oil at the racetrack and I'd forgotten to put the plug back in and okay. I dropped five quarts of red line right through to the grass underneath. And uh, my, my father to this day never lets me live that down. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so, so, so from there, it was onto the Trans Am series. Actually, it, but what happened next after that was I got a dear friend of mine, one of my best friends, Terry Earwood, who got me into Skip Barber to begin with. And uh, Terry was driving for a guy named Paul Rossi, who was a Dodge uh, guy. And both Terry and him were drag racers. And they knew each other from drag racing. And they were both, you know, Terry was a uh, U.S. national champion in in, uh, in in Hemi class, and that's exactly what Paul did. Well, Paul went to Chrysler and said, "Hey, you can't just dump me because we're not doing good." And you know, I guess at that time uh, the, the drag racing was on a downhill slide, right? And so Paul said, and they told Paul, "Your deal's done." And he goes, "No, it's not done." He goes, "What else can I do for Dodge? What What are you guys going to do race wise?" He goes, "We're going to get in the sports car racing." So they got into the Firestone Firehawk. With, and, and so Paul says, give me a shot at it. He hires Terry, who's chief instructor for Skip Barber, you know, gets him involved in the program. Terry, his grandmother passes away and he can't make a race in St. Louis at that gateway that you were talking about. And uh, and, and he says, what are we going to do? You know, if you can't come, who, who can we get? He goes, there's a guy there I know. You know, Dorsey Schrader, he's got a driving school there with sports for nose. But he's if he's a driver school guy, he knows the track. Sure. Give him a chance at So that I ended up getting a deal with Dodge. And at the time, the head of Dodge was a, a, a wonderful man named Dick Maxwell. And and Dick was just he, he was in charge of all Dodge racing. So, you know, I raced with him in Firestorm Firehawk two or three years. We won a bunch of sp- we won everything that you could win and and then i called dick one day and i said look no insult don't take this wrong but you know i really would like to get into a real race car again not a street stock car okay you know? and so he goes let me think about that he called me the next day and he goes we already had you pegged for this nobody knows we're doing it but we're going to build an, an imsa car two of them actually dodge gtu car off the dodge daytona and Cal Shoket is going to run the team. It's his money. It's, he's going to do it. You're going to get a car. He's going to get a car. We're going to start testing in about a week or two. And so it was all in progress. And I ended up getting that that ride with Dodge in that GTU car. And uh, a guy named Charlie Cook, who he's passed away now too, but he was the head of IMSA Tech. So Charlie built the two cars for both of us. And, uh, and Cal's was a front-wheel drive car. Mine was a rear-wheel drive car. It was a hell of a car. Sure. I mean, I kicked butt in that car, something fierce. 
And one of the, the top guns of the time was Tommy Kendall. And Tommy had a, uh, a, a Beretta, Chevrolet okay. Beretta. Not, not a real popular car by any means. But, you know, he got the deal with a guy named Max Jones, who uh, was my teammate later. Anyway, I was the only one to ever beat that car and uh, in that Dodge. And then what got me to ride with Roush was there was a day in uh, Lime Rock Park. And there was three races that day. There were premier races for that weekend, which probably would have been Memorial Day weekend. And uh, the first one started out at eight o'clock in the morning. It was a three hour uh, uh, Firestone Firehawk. So we went out there, me and Terry Earwood and Jeremy Dale uh, ended up winning, you know, the three hour race. Right behind that was a one hour GTU race. And I went out in the GTU car and won that race. And while that was going on, they didn't have a great GTO crowd. That, that was a new class then. But that was the fastest cars. That was a, you know what that, it was a funny car that turned. Okay. No yeah. real big rules. So you had the, the Datsun twin turbo Nissans. You know, you had the uh, turbocharged uh, Dan Gurney Toyotas. Right. The Jack Roush turbocharged uh, Mercures. And, you know, so then they had what the Trans Am cars used to be. So Jack Baldwin was there in the Skull Bandit and all that. And so Cal Shokett went up to Imps and said, if, if he will do it, what do you think about letting Dorsey race the GTU car in that GTO race? And he goes, well, there's no chance. He's down like, you know, he's down three, 400 horsepower. Well, you know, you need cars. Can we do it? We could use it for a test. They said, sure, no problem. Cowell's a very smart guy. Right. He already figured out. Now, it's a, it's a sub one minute lap at Lime Rock, right? So it's yep. a, say, a, say a 51 second lap. So a, a pit stop's going to take you a, a minute and a half. Sure. So he had already figured that we had a two lap advantage on fuel. Oh, lap. yeah, sure, sure. So race runs. Cal comes to me. I'm, a, I'm up there getting my accolades. And he says, can you do another one? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? He goes, I'll give you all the money that the car wins in this next race if you run this GTO race. So I qualified fifth because the car was fast there. Anyway, right. long story short, go through the whole dang thing. I won all three Norelco Cups, which was voted on by the media. So that was a thousand bucks a piece. I ended up third on the podium. Um, and that really pissed everybody off. And but you know, the car had a, a big advantage. Sure. And uh, and so when 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 Scott Pruitt was leaving Jack Roush. He was going to go do his IndyCar thing. And they were looking for a substitute. That's when they had that gong show that I won. won. There was like 12 drivers. That te they tested the hell out of us. In all, every car he had, we did Trans Am cars, IMSA cars, turbo cars, non-turbo cars, stock cars. And they just, we ran and ran and ran for three days. And uh, it, it, it was the guys, the mechanics on the team that, you know, they said, Here's a list of guys we're looking at it. If you don't like somebody, cross them off. If, if we miss something, add them. Well, the mechanics added me. He goes, what about that guy in that Dodge that kicked our butt? You know, and so I drove from I drove from eight in the morning to five in the afternoon. One guy, 
three races nonstop all day, one, two out of three, you know, and, and the third one got, so that, that's what got Jack Rapture's attention. And that's where Trans Am came in, but we right. didn't have a sponsor. You know, that was the, the worst thing. We had a sponsor for three races only when we started that year. And that was Motocraft. And, uh, and then we had to build it as we went. So it was an amazing 1989 year for sure. I bet. I bet. You know, and, and that from there got you into doing the IMSA stuff as well. So it just, it's amazing how, when I talk with folks uh, like you, how just one kind of thing layers upon the next, and it, it is a building block and a foundation. And, and back in the day, that foundation was the SECA for a lot of guys. And then, you know, and it just what you, how much of what you learned in, let's say, sports Renault, did that, did you take that to Trans Am and IMSA? I went from the fastest car time-wise in Formula Atlantic, which was then faster than Can-Am, to the slowest car ever built. A little 1200cc Renault, you know, uh, and everything was identical. It taught me, it taught me to be absolutely precise and smooth. Don't turn the steering wheel if you don't have to. You don't fight the car. Just keep this thing rolling through everything. And it taught me precision to the degree that that transpires. It get you know, you, you go from a sports Renault that had 80 horsepower maybe to an 1,100 horsepower beast like I was running in Trans Am, the Cougar or the, the turbocharged four-cylinder. It, you know, it all applies. It's all the same. It teaches you to be precision is number one, you know, rolling speed, number two, rolling speed being, you know, through the center of a corner, not losing the speed that you entered with and getting to the throttle before the next guy. Yeah. It's like a gun. It's a gunfight. Whoever pulls the trigger first is probably going to win. Right. You know, it's funny because you say that and it always drives me nuts when I see kids go from carts which are essentially tiny Formula One cars, power to weight ratio, oh, the way they fast. handle, fast as can be. And they go right from that into a, a you know, winged Formula car. Now that, you know, there's no not very many Formula Atlantics, like, but a Continental or a Formula 2000 or one of those. And they don't do a step in a Formula Ford or a Formula V or a spec racer now. And and because parents ask me all the time and I'm sure people, you know, I'm a car guy, I'm a racer guy. So parents ask, how do I get my kids involved in racing? And I always try to get them to do something in a low powered car, because if you can drive a low powered car fast, you can right. drive a high powered car fast. Yeah, but, absolutely. But but a, you know high a great a great thing. Well, karting is really, really good. It doesn't teach you braking all that much because you don't have to do much of it. Right. Autocrossing is also a really good step. And of course, we got solo, solo one, two, autocrossing SECA. That teaches you precision for sure. It also teaches you, you know, get to the throttle first, carry the momentum. That, that transpires through everything. It gets harder in some cases with some cars, uh, more high powered cars. But usually when you step up in a class, if you go from 
a GTU to a GTO, other than the fact that you, you have less decision-making time, the cars are betterly equipped right. to do the job. Right. So it's not as hard as you, your mind thinks it would be. You know, I, when I look at the, the drivers who get to those, you know, mid-level of, of like formula cars and haven't done that step, I, I, the ones who really are successful are the ones who, who did that step because a fast car like a Formula Atlantic could kind of mask not as good driving skills. Absolutely. The new cars nowadays, I absolutely hate paddle shift cars with ABS and with brake, you know, with, with uh, traction control. They allow a mediocre driver to become really fast because the car is carrying you. I mean, right. the top notch car I ever drove was the Audi uh, LMP1 R8, you know, the first year that they made them. And that car, you basically steer. Right. The rest of it's taken care of for you. Right. You know, so it, it's easy to do that. My mind, though, having come from old school, is like, if any of that shit fails, I could be dead. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, so I always try to t direct people, you know, even, don't even, even if it's not a season, do some racing, do some testing in these lower powered cars because uh, they oh, will yeah. really, really teach you skills. And then when you get to a uh, fast series, when you, when you, like you said, a mediocre car driver who can go fast, when they actually get really good drivers in fast cars, they shake their heads like, why can't I beat them? And usually those faster drivers are the ones that spend some time in a low-powered class and really learn car control. You know, and you, you learn car control and you learn to, you know, you learn, this is the phrase I've always used. There's, it's a black and white and there's a gray area. And the gray area is a driver that's so good that he learns to trick the car. Yeah. into doing what it needs to do, what he wants it to do, not what it needs to do. It doesn't want to go there. And it's trying to tell you, no, I'm not going there. But if you can force it to go there and make it an advantage to yourself, you know, there's your driver. There you there's go. There's your guy. There you go. All right, let's take a quick break so we, we can t catch our breath. I mean, we we talk for three hours, but we don't, have, we don't have that much time. But let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get the news for the week in SCCA. And uh, we'll start talking a little bit about Dorsey's storied broadcasting career. There's tons of stories there. One about me, too. It's not about me. It's about Dorsey. But Dorsey had fun with me at one point in time on a broadcast. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Inside the SCCA. When I need numbers for my autocross time trial or road race car, I go to autocrossdigits.com. Christian and his crew offer top quality magnetic and vinyl numbers. Their website is easy to navigate. The prices are great and most orders ship in four business days. If you need numbers for your car, check out autocrossdigits.com. Tell them the podcast guy sent you. Welcome back to Inside the SCCA. Here's this week's headlines. Starting in 2022, all SECA contingency programs will be digital. No more going to tech to get an official to sign off on your contingency program. Solo and rally cross competitors have used the system for a while. Now road racers can do the same. This means you'll need to take a photo of the front and sides of your car at each event and upload it to your membership portal. This is a slightly new procedure for all programs, so make sure you go to seca.com to get the details. There's still time to register for Alaska's region's year-ender rally. Yes, a rally in Alaska the day after Christmas. I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure you won't need your shorts and flip-flops for this one, people. 
There's a link to the registration page in the show notes. Registration is open for the first Super Tour race at Sebring. The action kicks off January 14th. It's a great opportunity for our snowbound brothers and sisters to head south for a little winter racing action. Once again, there's a link to register in the show notes. And lastly, don't forget to register for SECA Connect 2022, the club's second virtual convention. Head to SECA.com for the details. If you would like to get some of your region's news on the podcast, send the details in an email to raceannouncerbrian at gmail.com. For Inside the SECA, I'm Alex Bolianski. Welcome back to Inside the SECA. I'm Brian Bolanski. My guest today, SECA Hall of Famer and all-around good guy, Dorsey Schrader. Dorsey, uh, we've, we've been going through your racing career uh, absolutely stellar, and, and, and there are probably more stories. We'll, we'll do another podcast sometime and get deeper and deeper. Let's talk a little bit about the broadcast booth. Uh, how did you – I mean, when I hear you tell stories – there's no question how you got in the broadcast booth, but how did that first opportunity come to you? You know, it, it was in between. Um, there was like, I don't know if you do chapters, let's say there was six chapters of my life. And in between those chapters, I was transitioning between whatever series I was in. And then those opportunities go away. The biggest one went away with Jack Roush. In 91, um, Ford pulled all the budget away from uh, road racing. And that was obviously what I did. And so Robbie Gordon and I were all of a sudden without work. Robbie went to IndyCar. I went to broadcasting. And it came out of nowhere. Um, I'm not sure who first came and said, you know, what would you think about being the color guy on, on this or that, you know, and, um, you know, quite honestly, nobody told me the job description, <laughs> you know? And so I was, I, I'll never forget this because Marty Reed hates me to this day because we were <laughs> doing a, we were doing a, uh, a NASCAR truck race at Sonoma and, I got so excited at the end of the race because it was a good race, you know, and it was coming down to the wire that I didn't shut up and let him finish the show, which is what, you, of course, you know, the, the host finishes the, the right. broadcast and the color guy shuts up. I didn't shut up. <laughs> and he, he still hates me to this day about that, but nobody ever told me the rules. You know, I, I didn't have a clue. And, and so I learned as I went, uh, I worked with great guys. You, you mentioned speed vision a long time back and, and speed vision was, I think the best broadcast team ever in, in motorsports. And of course that it went from speed vision to speed and then went to speed channel. Then it went to ultimately Fox took it. And as far as I'm concerned, killed it. Right. But, you know, there was really talented guys there, uh, and their egos didn't get in their way. I, except Marty, he's still mad, but (laughs) I didn't know any better. That's funny. I was so excited. Marty gave me my first, uh, my first network broadcast job. It was two races in the score truck series. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I did some of that. And my job was to, cause I knew, I I knew race cars and I had it and I was in television at the time. And so he, he, he brought me on to crawl into these trophy trucks and mount the cameras in the trucks. Oh yeah. 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 
and yep. that was my job. And I had and, and I had like 20 minutes in each truck to get them in because the, the mechanics didn't want me screwing around in their trucks. And then when the race was over, I had like four minutes to get the camera out because they all wanted to go home. <laughs> and it was it was it was crazy. And I, I only did it like for two events because there were only two events in Crandon, Wisconsin. I that know. Was there. Been there. Yeah. So so that's actually so, a cool track, too. That is really cool. You know, and I was from Wisconsin, so I was local and he didn't have to pay for a plane ticket. I think that was the only reason he hired me. But uh, and and yes, I can see Marty uh, giving you a hard time about that for the rest of your well, life. I didn't even get it at first. You know, I didn't know what he was <laughs> mad at. He yelled so, at me, about it, but, you know, whatever. It, you know, it's funny. I, I would guess that that's a, a similar experience for a lot of the drivers who crossed over the first time into television. It was like they just didn't tell you there was no, no. On, was on the job training. There's no school for how to no. be a color commentator. No. And, they, you know, there's unwritten rules. Nobody talks about it until you do it wrong. Then they talk about it. You know, but I had no clue about that. And, uh, of course, the longer you stay with it the more you understand it, the better you get at it, you know, but, but it's very, it is very political and it's definitely, you know, it, it's, you got to watch what you're doing and saying all the time. Definitely. Definitely. So uh, in your broadcast life, what, what is the, the, the race that sticks out in your head the most that you called? You know, we did Le Mans live, uh, for many years with, with speed vision. And that was that had having never been to France and having never been to Le Mans, I was in, in awe of how big that is. You know, that's one of my bucket list things. I tell people, you know, if you're a real race guy, real race fan, what do you need to do? What do you, what should I do? That's, I don't want to say do it five times, but you got to do it once. Because it's so different and so huge. I've been threatening to do that with my wife for, for a long, long time. And I told her, this is how I'm trying to sweeten the deal. I said, okay, we'll go to France for like a week. And the first couple of days you and I will spend in Paris. And then I'll bring in one of your girlfriends to spend the rest of the week in Paris while I go to Le Mans and have fun. Because yeah. she won't want to spend three days no, no. at Le Mans. And, uh, and, there's a, and, sure. and there's a group of Milwaukee region corner workers who go to Lamont every year and mm-hmm. they've been doing it for decades. And I, I believe they're still doing it. And they are, they, they're so well respected there that they give them a corner for the U S people to cover. And, uh, and I've heard stories about, you know, halfway through the race, they've got the baguette and the, in the champagne and it's a it's whole amazing. different environment there. It is, it is here. Mean, you know, when you, it's funny because you're going to be there for 24 hours, but you're on, say, three hours at a time and then you're off for three hours and you're but, but you can actually get in your car and you can drive all eight miles yep. on, on public roads. And there's these little these little cafes where you can just sit down and get your baguette and your, your fromage and, <laughs> and ham. It's that's all I ate the whole time. Ham and cheese is it on a big old piece of bread. Um, but you can sit there and have a glass of wine and the racetrack's coming right next to you. I yep. mean, right next to you. It's whistling on down the straightaway. It's cool. It's, it's, yeah. it's so accessible. And it's, it's, uh, the, the town is, you know, it's like something out of World War II. You, you go into, you, you take the bullet train from Paris 
down to Le Mans, you get out on the train station and you come up the stairs and you're there. Yeah. You're at the racetrack, you yeah. know, literally. Um, and, and it's, it, and the buildings are old and there's not, a, a, there's no roofers in, in France. <laughs> all the, the roofs are all falling down. It's a, it, like I say, it's, it, it, it looks like a scene out of World War II. Uh, but God, you got to do it once at least. Yeah. I was, we, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago on the new uh, SCCA Enduro series that they just announced. And uh, sadly, and, and, and maybe they will down the road, but they don't have any plans to do an actual 24 hour race. They're going to do a couple of 10 hour races back to back where they keep the cars in the same order. So it's a 20 hour race with a, you go to sleep in the middle. You've done a number of 24 hour races. Oh yeah. Have you done the shift from sun, from dark to sunrise? Have you yeah. set, I, I was telling uh, Eric Prill, I said, the, the coolest thing in the world is to be at the racetrack as the sun's coming up at Daytona uh, in particular. Absolutely. At Daytona, you know, it's spectacular. The, the year I won that, I, I, I was in that shift coming into the morning, you know, and you think you're, you've got it one. You're just waiting for a check and flag. You're not even close yet. You still got well, eight hours. And, and and now it used to be that uh, Daytona ended at 10 a.m., but because of television, they've moved it to 3 p.m. or 2 p.m. So it's now all, when the sun man. comes up, there's half a race left. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, you think you're good, but you're not good yet. You know, and that that is a special time. It's really neat because at the night time, I was there the, the year they had to shut it down for fog mm-hmm. for four hours because you couldn't see. And I remember I was. I was following that was in the Cougar and that car was fast. That car was, that was over 200 mile an hour car. That car do like 208 or something. Wow. And so we had more straightaway speed than the GTP cars did. They had so much more braking and so much more corner speed, you know, through the infield. So they would come out of the, of the bus stop on the back straight and they'd get up on banking and they'd get into their top gear and we'd be between NASCAR three and four in getting our top gear and whistle right by, just go right on by, you know, and then we'd break it about the six marker and they'd break it to two. <laughs> That's so, good stuff. That's good. But stuff. you know, you learn to live with each other. I, I was running with Jeff Brabham uh, at the time he had the, the Nissan uh, GTP car. We got to be good friends and uh, you know, we worked with each other. I didn't slow him up. He didn't slow me up where I was fast. And we, we, it just coexisted. That's something these guys nowadays don't get yet. And, and I try to tell them, you know, I, I, going through as a chief steward or a, a, a driving instructor, I said, it all has to work in the flow. You have to be good where you're good. Yeah. And, and you can't be good where you're not good. So use it, you know, make it work for you. So my first pro race that I ever went to back in the 80s was at Road America. It was an IMSA race. And and the first car I fell in love with was that GTP Nissan. And oh. and the sound that it made when it light off and the wastegate opened up. Exactly. Everyone knows the sound. Everyone knows the sound. I was instantly in love with this thing. And and honestly... That, that was a I, I don't know if that was right before or right after my dad bought his first car after I was born, but th- that race 
changed the course of my life. You mm. know, I've been at racetracks across the country as both working and as a, as a corner worker and as a driver, my, my best friends are racers of some form or fashion. And, and some of them are family. I mean, uh, sure. I, I'd, I'd walk in front of a bus for these people or a race car. If you're a corner I mean, worker, you know, we're all, we're all family. Once you've been in this for a little while, you're all family. Yeah. Because well, we do things. What was your road America GTP moment? What was the, the, the moment where you went, this is where I'm going to spend a good portion of my life. You know, the first time you go to Road America is like the first time you go to Daytona. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll never be, you'll never be different. You'll, you know, you'll never have that feeling again. It's such an awesome experience to go to either of those tracks because of the magnitude of them. You know, you go there and your eyes just get bigger and you're like, oh my God, you know, people don't understand how big those places are or yeah. Italian for that matter also but you know they uh, race in there the first time i raced there was in former atlantic uh, and unfortunately didn't have a great experience because it the uh, the electronics on those at the time were suspect mm-hmm. at best and i made <laughs> where they made the pace lap <laughs> right right before before the crank sensor you know gave up and and i sat there the rest of that one of the things about wrote wrote it uh america which is so cool i broke down coming out of canada corner mm-hmm. and i pulled over to the right because i didn't really have any choice it parked up against the uh the guardrail there and i heard these guys yelling and they uh they're like they're sitting there and they had a little lean to tent thing uh and they had a keg of beer and they, <laughs> they're like come on over <laughs> which which i did <laughs> That's awesome. So I had to get somebody else to drive the car back. <laughs> so, so that, that, that GTP race that I was telling you about is also, I must've been 15, 16 years old. You know, it's also where I discovered bikinis. Yeah. That, and that was good at the time too. <laughs> we need that back. We need that back. That's why this, this is exactly why the spectators are not as big as they used to be. It's because, you know, in the seventies and eighties, with the bell-bottom girls, with the tank tops and stuff. It was, you know, I consider, I, I, if I would not be me, I would like to be James Hunt. Okay, yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, the scenery level was big. You know, it, it yeah. was just, it was a very sexy sport in the 70s and 80s. Right, right. And that's, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It was, it was really was. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. And it just one of those things where it all kind of came together and said, this is in some form or fashion, I'm going to find a way to do this in for yep. the rest of my life. And, you know, I, I, I've never done a pro race. That's still something maybe at age 50, I could try to figure out a way to get into one of those, but you know, in, in from corner working to announcing to driving a it car to spec racer. And, and, and the first time, the first time we we raced at Road America was the June Sprints. Oh, that's you know? huge! And it was an eighty or ninety car s- sports Renault field at that time. Oh boy! And, and it was, and you know, as as good as my dad was, he he qualified sixtieth. 
<laughs> but the funny part was exactly. But the funny part was that before turn one on the first lap, he was 22nd. Thankfully, That's there's a- no there's no cameras because <laughs> I'm not but, quite but sure that, that was legal. <laughs> that is such a moment. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's such an amazing place. And I, I, I work for Road America uh, for Mike Kircher okay. uh, on that month. So I, I missed the juice June sprints this year just by a week because uh, my motorhome broke down. There you go. <laughs> Tempor- temporarily. And then, uh, but I ended up doing the NASCAR race, working for him. I did, uh, I did the IndyCar race. I did the, uh, the big one, the, the Hawk, or now it's, it's the WeatherTech Hawk International, which is the vintage race. And we get right. like 450, 500 cars. So I, I live up there for that month, which I used to do with Skip Barber too, uh, yeah. amongst some other guys that lived up there. We, we had our own little motorhome park in uh, Sebring and we had one at, uh, at Elkhart Lake, you know, all the big tracks, all, all the skippy guys had uh, a compound yeah, yeah, just like SEC corner workers do. You know, that's where I, you started there. I started yep. as a corner yep. worker also. And, uh, and we all hang together and, and it's, it's a big weekend for everybody. So I, I have to thank you because, well, there's a broadcast story I need to tell before I thank you. Because maybe I won't thank you after tell the story, but anyway. <laughs> so I'm. We're, it's a pro race weekend at Road Atlanta. You're in the booth. I I want to say it was maybe Motorola Cup or something. Uh, but all I know is that there were there were Mustang GTs on the track because the car I was responding to was a Mustang that had rolled a couple times, going from eleven to twelve. So on the downhill before the right-hander on the inside, this car rolled. It was kind of like a gentle roll, but it was a roll nonetheless, you know, and I'm the dutiful corner worker wearing my whites and carrying the fire bottle, which unfortunately it was a, a, I think it was a 20 pound bottle and not a 10 pound bottle. And I'm not fast to begin with. And I'm trying to run to this car and I, and, and, and some, for some reason, I didn't realize that the pin had been pulled. And as I got about uh, 25 or 30 feet from the car, I tripped and went ass over tea kettle twice. And as I was doing that, the fire bottle was going puffing white smoke in circles. I'm already embarrassed. Okay. I remember this, but liking it. Uh, uh, Well, you, you did like it because on the replay, they replayed the rollover of the car maybe once. But they replayed the rollover of me two or three times. And you all in the booth got a big old hoot out of it. Uh, so I go home. I, 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 I recorded the race because it's back in the VHS days. And I'm all excited to go see the race. And I didn't realize that I was like the feature event. <laughs> oh, it was. Beautiful, uh, but you showed me no mercy. No mercy. Oh, uh, you know, and, and, and you know. When you're doing those things broadcast wise, you know, and you're not thinking about the humanity oh. part of things, but it, you know, there's, <laughs> there's stuff that happens during races that is uh, pretty much almost not explainable. Right. And you know what I'm talking about. I yep. mean, stuff happens and it's just like you laugh at it and, and you, you know, you go on, but you know, some of it's not as funny as you think it is at the time. Oh, it- it so was I'm funny. Apologize. This no, is my, this is my 
my um, cheesy way of apologizing. Well, I, I will tell you that if I were in the booth and seeing the same thing, I would have done the exact same thing you guys did. It was it was a great moment to, of television. So I have but, a, I have a whole list. They used to call them Dorseyisms. Yep. And there was uh, we we put together at one point. Uh, we put together a, a video of Dorseyisms. And the, the head producer of the show thought it was inappropriate because he thought I would be offended. But it was it was my mess ups. Right. And silly things that happened. And I would not have been offended one bit because it was truly funny. Yeah. Good and, stuff. And it can't be explained. <laughs> so so what I want to thank you for is is as a corner worker, as a race worker, all of the workers yeah. are volunteers. Yeah, uh, th- there's there's no pay involved in almost every worker position. I'm, there might be some steward or whatever or what, in some. But but for the most part, the people that you see at the racetrack, the people dressed in white on the corners, uh, the start stand, all, all these. These are these are volunteers. Yeah, absolutely. They, they spend not only do they they vol- they don't get paid to do it. They spend their money to drive to the race track for hotels, for a motor home, for to, to eat. Uh, and, and it's they do it because they love doing it. And on Saturday night at most races, we have a, a worker party. It's usually yep. a gathering. Sometimes there's some adult beverages involved. And Sometimes. well, <laughs> trying to keep this PC. Uh, but there's there's always there's, there's always some adult beverages involved. And on pro race weekends. Because a lot of the, our workers support pro races. I've I've worked sure. at Long Beach. I've worked at Road America, Road Atlanta. I mean, I, that's fun you know, for me. That's kind of like the cherry on the top. But here's what I want. Here's what I wanted to thank you for. On pro race weekends, we have our little party, and it's kind of just us doing our thing. And I can't count the number of times that you've showed up at the party, and sat and held court and told stories. <laughs> and 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 I, I'm sure that the reason you came partially was because the beer was free. But yeah, in, I'm a cheap day. I know. I know. So am I. But uh, but a lot of guys, drivers, teams it, 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 don't don't do that. And it means so much to our workers. You know, yeah. Paul, Paul Newman would come to the worker party always. And as long as you never asked him about Hollywood, he'd stay for an hour. Absolutely. You know, and and, you know, uh, Chris Economaki would come to the worker party. You know, I think he was also a cheap beer guy, too. But uh, but but I mean, it, it means so much to the workers when the drivers come to these parties, even if it's for 15 minutes and you would come. And in every race I've ever been to that you were at that I can remember, you would come to the worker party and spend some time with us. And it means and, and I've had t- time with you in other places. So, it did, you know, that's great. But for the people who don't get to spend time with Dorsey Schrader a lot, it's really meaningful. And, and I hope other drivers kind of hear this and say, you know what, I'll stop by. You know, the, the older I get and the more time I've committed, I shouldn't say committed to, but have enjoyed the, the years I've done this the more I realize that, uh, you know, you have a, um, a profound effect on people that you don't think about at the time. You, you just don't understand that, you know, people look up to you or they admire you or they, you know, that, that what, when you do that, when you show up, um, how much it means to them. 
Yeah. And and the, and the longer you spend doing it, the more you realize, you know, it's a huge deal yeah. to a lot of people. We're running out of time. I've got two final questions. First of all, what, over the years, you've done this a long time. What, what does the SCCA meant to you? Well, it was a starting point. You know, I, I was the poster child being the youngest driver ever allowed in to get a competition license. So I started at the, I was the, I was the first guy, you know, I, I was 18 years old by a month when I got my license. And of course it'd been 21 years old before you could do a driver's school up until 1972 In 72 in January, that new rule uh, of being an 18 year old came in effect. Well, I turned 18 on February 5th you know, in 1972 and started my driver's school the next month in March. My dad was a uh, was a car dealer and a race car driver, and he also had involvement with SCCA. So I was there as a corner worker for the couple of years that he was driving before I was able to do this deal. But being the youngest guy, that, that was very important to me. Uh, my career as it went on throughout, it's been 50 years now. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, and I stop, I, I'm competition director for HSR. I still get to drive race cars every once in a while. I've been, did some endurance racing a couple of years back with the 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring and six hours at the Glen. That's amazing at, you know, my age. And, but then I look at Newman, you know, he did it up till 72. Right. And won. Yeah. You know, that guy, I mean, that's, it's, it's amazing. It, it's hard. I didn't realize, you know, the cars are different, a lot different now. Right. They take more physical uh, ability than they used to do. You know, you're pulling four G's in a corner in the Audi. You know, we used to do less than a G, right. you know, that back in the day. But you didn't um, have power steering. <clears throat> no power steering. Any of that. <laughs> you know, I drove one of those cars just recently. I drove my, my uh, the Ray Bessis Mustang a couple of years back, my God, I must've been in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yep. it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, it, people yeah. don't realize how hard it is. And what the neat thing with endurance racing is it's a half hour stint. Like it is an SCCA. A normal race is about a half hour, 40 right. minutes, you know, not three hours, you know, a guy that's 50, you know, 50, I'm 69 years old. Three hours is a lot to ask. Yeah. You know, half hour, I'm good with that. You know, there you go. There even you go. that being said, I was like somewhere in the, in the last three races of an, three laps of an eight hour race. I'm like going, how many laps are left? Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, 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 it's an amazing sport and it's, I'll never leave it. That's for sure. That's awesome. And, and so SCCA is, uh, is, you know, they, they are the contributing factor for all of us to do what we've done over these years. I mean, they were the first, they were the biggest and strongest organization. And it goes right down to the, to the, to the people who, you know, are members of the club and support it with their time and their effort. Um, we couldn't do anything without that. Right. Right. I agree with you so much. So my last question is, is who, who was your racing hero? Before you got into this, Mark Donahue and James Hunt. There you go. <laughs> for different Sp reasons. Yeah, for totally different reasons. 
I got to meet Mark Donahue, James Hunt. I like him because of his persona, and that, that was what I wanted to be. And uh, and Jackie Stewart, because he was a he was a more confined, more you know, uh, real gentlemanly, life, but with long hair. <laughs> There you go. There you go. You know, it's funny. I just I'm doing a, a 12 days of Christmas edition for racers. And uh, the ninth day of Christmas with was, was uh, nine books on racing. And mm. one of the books was uh, The Unfair Advantage by Mark Donahue. Uh, it's, That's a it's great book. Every guy and gal who wants to be a race car driver or is a race car driver should read that book. So th- thank you. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure catching up, and and I look forward to the next time I get to see you at the racetrack. Absolutely. Me too. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Inside the SCCA. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the Racing Wire Podcast Network so you won't miss an episode. It would also be great if you leave a comment, especially if it's a good one. If it's a bad one, go leave it on someone else's podcast. You can follow us on social media to find out who our next guest is and leave a question. On Twitter, it's at RacingWireNet. There's a new Inside the SCCA every week. Have yourself a great weekend and go play with cars. The Inside the SCCA podcast is an independent media outlet owned, operated, and managed by Rule 15 Productions. Rule 15 Productions uses the SCCA name with permission, but without direction or influence from the Sports Car Club of America.